Good morning. want to welcome you to Calvary Grace Church. Please come in and take your seats. My name is Clint Humphrey. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Grace Church here. I just want to welcome you all as we are gathered together as an assembly of redeemed sinners who aim to honor their victorious King, even Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're doing this morning, and it's great to see you all here. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, fairly full this morning as everybody's getting their kids and cramming in here. Um, but we've got a wonderful opportunity this morning on the Lord's Day to worship the true and living God. So I invite you to come and take your seats. And I'm going to ask Michael Fontanella if he would give us his family news, some of a little bit of, not his family, but uh, that pun intended. No, sorry, your announcements. So about my family, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, good morning, everyone. I would direct you to a uh, paper uh, bulletin if you have it. If you do not, right in front of your pew, there is a little um, paper there, a QR code, and you can get the order of service online. So for this week, Tuesday, we're going to start off our men's and women's bi-weekly studies, starting off with the men's, and we will resume the Simeon Trust First Principles. It'll be four sessions for the men and the women, and this is just an opportunity to not just know, know the Bible and uh, studying the Bible, but how to study the Bible and apply it. It will be a combined group just downstairs in the fellowship hall Tuesday at 7 p.m. Simeon Trust First Principles course. On September 16th is the women's brunch at 10 a.m. and it's also downstairs in the fellowship hall. Uh, the following week is men's breakfast at September 23rd. You could RSVP. You can see we like QR codes here, so pull out your phone, scan that QR code, and RSVP. And last but not least, next Sunday, September 17th, is our baptism Sunday. It'll be a great time to witness again, as Pastor Clint mentioned, in our Sunday school, just to be a testimony, a public announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's next Sunday. Feel free to invite your family and friends, and it'll be a good time just to um, witness the good news of the gospel. I'll pass it off to Pastor Clint. Thanks, Michael. Well, uh, we are going to worship the Lord together, and the Lord summons us to worship Him. And so we have a call to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that, that Christ says to us through His word and calls us to worship Him. It says in Colossians 3 and verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That is who we are seeking. We are looking to Jesus Christ, risen, seated at the right hand of God. We are going to lift our eyes to things above. That's what we want to do this morning. That's why we've gathered from all of the all of the things that you've been facing this week. We are here to worship Him, and He has called us to worship Him in this way. Let's pray together as we begin. Holy Father, we ask now that You would cause us to zero in all of our attention on You and Your glory as we see Your Son risen and magnified, glorified through the resurrection. O oh Lord, by Your Holy Spirit, Come and work in us that our hearts would be filled with praise, that we would receive your truth, and that you would transform us even now in this event of worship. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to rise as the worship team leads us. Please stand. As we just sang, we're proclaiming God's power to save, and we proclaim it again and again. And in doing that, we want to proclaim the ability of God to save sinners, but we want to do that as those who believe that He's able to do that. And so, in doing that, we want to be honest about our sin. We even want to confess our sin. And with the church through the ages in corporate worship, we confess our sins together. So in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, it says this, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now in that command to set our minds on things above, Paul is reminding us of the fact that very often we don't have our minds set on things above. That in fact, we are fixated on the things that are on earth. And just to consider, have you been thinking and fixated upon what is on earth? Have you been thinking about what has been going on in your week without reference to setting your mind on things above? And I have to say for myself, probably guilty as charged, and I just invite you, as you consider your own life, I just want you to bow your head and just pray to God and own up to your sin of not seeking things above, but merely seeking things on the earth. And after a time of silent confession before the Lord, then I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Just bow your heads and confess your sins to God. The Apostle Paul gives us an assurance of the pardon for our sins if we believe in Jesus Christ for that pardon, for that atonement. And Paul says this in verse 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If that is true, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as you've confessed your sins, you're believing in Jesus Christ, then you can know the assurance that your sins are pardoned because you now are hidden with Christ in God. Would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, for those who are here today, who are maybe unclear about where they stand before you, Lord, I pray that they would maybe with a new sense, a new awareness, they would see the gospel of Jesus Christ, your own Son, the forgiveness of moral criminality, the forgiveness of sin that only comes because Jesus shed his blood on the cross and received the curse against those sins, the punishment of them, he received it in himself. He received the full punishment of the law. And Lord, unless we trust in him that he has substituted himself for us, there is no forgiveness of our sins.
we stand with our sins ready to be punished on the last day. But for those who hide themselves in Christ, those here who have hidden themselves within Christ, within this cleft of the rock, that they would be hidden in Him, Lord, You have given an assurance that those sins are forgiven. And You have guaranteed that pardon and its assurance of pardon even through raising Jesus from the dead. O Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Help us to believe that if we trust in Jesus Christ exclusively, we can know that the guilt is gone and that we stand free before you. Lord, we thank you for such a privilege, the privilege of having our sins forgiven. And we give you great praise and thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In owning our sin and asking God's forgiveness for our sin and being assured, even really God owning the fact that we are pardoned for our sins, we then too want to own what we believe about God. And so at this part in our service, we have a confession or confession of faith, an ownership of what we believe. And from the Calvary Grace statement of faith, this is statement four on the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And so we confess our faith in this way. We confess this. We believe that God sent forth his eternal son as Jesus the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that God the Son became flesh, taking on a fully human nature so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. We believe that, therefore, Jesus Christ was and is truly God and truly man. One Christ and the only mediator between God and man. We believe in His sinless life, miracles and teachings, His death on the cross and bodily resurrection, and His ascension into heaven and His perpetual intercession for His people. That is what Jesus does. That is who Jesus Christ is. And with that, I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue to worship the risen Christ. Jesus is risen right now. We get to worship him together. Please stand. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be reading verse 30 through 50. just want to thank the worship team, Kim, DJ, and Alan, for leading us in worship. We continue to worship through the reading of His Word. This is all part of our worship. And in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, we have this gospel account that is recorded for us, and we have confidence that this is the very Word of God. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water and drink, a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his, his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two, than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, even as he has spoken truth, truth spoken in the first century, truth that speaks today. O Lord, as we consider your weighty word, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We thank you that your word does go out this morning through gospel-preaching churches across the world today. We think specifically of Grace Cochran Church, and Pastor Josh Carey, newly installed. We ask, Lord, that for that church plant from Calvary Grace, that church would flourish, the gospel would go forward. We pray that you would protect Josh and Julie and their family against the schemes of the enemy, and that you would help Josh as he heralds your word even this morning. Lord, we thank you that in this country we can still preach the gospel, and that we are not being arrested here this morning. But we do pray that you would thwart the schemes of the enemy to try to limit 
the influence of the gospel on this nation. We pray that you would help us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ in this crooked and perverse generation. We pray for Justin Trudeau, for his repentance, for his faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that he would believe in Jesus truly before it's too late. We pray for Danielle Smith, that she would govern wisely and justly. We pray that you would cause her to turn from her sins and believe in Jesus Christ. We pray for Jody Gondek, our mayor. We pray that she would flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Jesus Christ. We pray that you would cause her to govern well and righteously. But we do pray, Lord, that you would save her soul. Lord, as we are here gathered together, gathered to hear your word, we do praise you and thank you for the way you've ministered even to this church. We thank you for returning Calvin Heinrichs amongst us. We ask, Lord, your mercy upon him. We pray for Jake Peacock as he has recently been in hospital. We thank you that he's at home. We pray that you would grant him mercy even after uh, his training accident. We ask, Lord, even as we think of the advance of the gospel across the world, we pray for Pastor Gavin Peacock and Amanda Peacock in the UK on sabbatical. We just pray you'd attend to Gavin's ministry there, help him as he shares the gospel in the UK, a very needy nation. And Lord, here as we are here gathered, even on this Sunday school launch Sunday, we thank you that we've got all of these children who are coming to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Empower the Sunday school teachers so that they would equip these children to know the truth. We pray for the parents here that they would be encouraged to stand fast for Christ and to hand on the gospel to their children. Oh Lord, our hope is in your gospel going forth. And now as we hear from your word, we pray your spirit would do a surgery on us, wound us and heal us, even for your own glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When the church growth gurus used to talk about something like a launch Sunday like we're having here, when they would, when they would t- tell pastors what pastors were supposed to preach on on such a Sunday like this when we're starting up Sunday school again, it was generally thought that pastors were supposed to preach on something that was pretty light and hopefully funny. Um, Now, I'm not funny except when I don't mean to be. That's when I'm funny. So if you came for comedy, you came to the wrong place. I'm just not that good at it. Um, And probably these church growth gurus would not advise preaching on the doctrines of heaven and hell. But that's what I'm going to do. So if you don't come back next Sunday, then I'll know why. Um, But as we're continuing going through the Gospel of Mark, which we've been going through uh, for the last number of months, we're just going to continue on in our exposing or exposition of this book of the Bible, this account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we keep going through the Gospel of Mark, if you've been here in previous Sundays, you and both, and I certainly have been, we've been confronted with Jesus' very, very direct type of ministry. His ministry on earth, it was very direct. He was hands-on. 
and his ministry continues even as it is mediated to us through his word and by his spirit. Jesus is alive right now in heaven ministering to us at this moment through his word and through his Holy Spirit. And so we actually still have that ministry. So it's important, probably the most important thing that I can do as a pastor on this this special Sunday is to actually welcome you to Jesus. Welcome you to the true Christ. Because Jesus this morning is summoning each one of you, every person here, he's summoning you to pick a side. To choose a side. Whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on Jesus' side? Or are you going to be on the other side? That's what's in front of you. You see, the doctrine of heaven and hell is simply the doctrine of being right with God through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. Or not. And those doctrines are dividing lines that Jesus himself drew. It's not just me, the preacher, drawing them. It is the lines that Jesus drew. So if you like Jesus, you're interested in Jesus, you think Jesus is cool, you have to reckon that Jesus drew lines, dividing lines. When he drew those lines, he was drawing them straight through the heart of every human being. Drawing a line through your heart. And in drawing that line, the line drew then directly to Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. So it's very fitting this morning that Jesus himself would draw this line among us. That's what... that's what he does. And, and, and a new line that is drawn then places himself, Jesus, on one side and the whole world on the other. So that's the choice you have before you this morning. Do you want to be on Jesus' side or do you want to be on the crowd side? Do you want to be on the Savior's side or do you want to be on the side with the world? Whose side are you on? And that, like, there's no wiggle room on it. There's either one or the other. So we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 9, first, that the gospel does draw this new line of faith in verses 30 and 32. And secondly, we're going to see that Jesus has no competitors. Jesus has no competitors. And so then his servants magnify Jesus' status, not their own. They're not trying to be competitors either. And thirdly, we're going to see that alignment with Jesus is the only way. You have to be on Jesus' side. And fourthly, that hell, hell is the consequence for those who don't align with Jesus. That's what we're going to see. So summarizing these four points, we're going to see that there's a dividing line of faith a dividing line of service, a dividing line of loyalty, and a dividing line of consequence. And so, it's serious, but it's real. It's real. 
because we're dealing in realities. I'm not here to just flatter you with light talk and comedy because it's not real. We want to deal in real things. And that's what, in a world of such falsehood and misinformation, we want to deal in what is real and what is true. So as we begin, you, you need to ask yourself, do you know which side you're on? Do you know? Are you clear about that? And then are you on Jesus' side? Are you on the right side? It's the most, in question, most important question in the whole world. Now in verse 31, we have Jesus making his prediction. It's a prophecy, if you will, a prophecy about himself that the exciting, healing, miracle ministry that he was doing was going to come to a violent end. Now already, if you're wanting Jesus meek and mild, you can't escape the violence that is involved in the gospel. It's an ugly thing, but it's a real thing. Jesus himself said in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's the good news. On the third day, he rose. But he's predicting this. But all this this violence against Jesus. Now, on the one hand, he was showing that Jesus, he's showing that he's voluntarily willing to be the atoning sacrifice on the cross. Well, he's not coerced. He's the willing, he, he's willing to do that. And his own atonement was going to be sealed on the, by the resurrection on the third day. But on the other hand, he was showing that he would suffer. And he would suffer violently at the hands of men. Now, uh, recently, I've been listening to the Lord of the Rings audiobook with my youngest son. And so we've been, we've been nerding out on the Lord of the Rings. And maybe, you know, if you're one of those Lord of the Rings nerds, you, you know where we're coming from. So you're going through this. And one of the things that, that you would hear frequently in the Lord of the Rings is this phrase, the hands of men. What happens when stuff gets in the hands of men? Generally, in the hands of men, it's not very reliable, not very trustworthy, not very good. It means being delivered into corrupt hands, hands that do evil. Now, Peter, he preached eloquently on this point in Acts chapter 2. He said, speaking of Jesus, he said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's who Jesus was delivered into, into the hands of lawless men. So the murder of Jesus, as John MacArthur phrased it, the murder of Jesus is how the headlines would describe what happened to the Son of Man. But his life, death, and resurrection, they, they then form that pivot point for all of history. Or we could say it is the dividing line of history even because from the first Good Friday to the first Resurrection Sunday, that line is drawn for all people from that point. You have to now believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And that line is drawn right there, right through the cross and resurrection. If you want Jesus, but you don't want the cross, then you're on the wrong side of the line. If you like Jesus as a moral teacher, but you don't want him as the risen king ruling right now, well, then you're on the wrong side of the line. So that's what's put to you this morning, the the cross and the resurrection, the murder and the vindication, the atonement and the glory. These are the new lines of of division which Jesus himself laid down prophetically before they happened. And they are still laid down now even from Jesus in heaven because Jesus is still alive. He's still placing that dividing line down on all of mankind. So you know this, don't you? You know this. If you're a Christian believer here today, you know, even in this past week or this past month, you've had experience of feeling like you just aren't a part of everyone else. You've had experience that you just don't belong. And why is that? If you're a Christian believer, is because when you hear the ambulance that could be coming for you, you still know that you have trust of hope beyond the grave. You have hope of that. But you know that there's other people, they don't care about that. They only care about stuff of this world. They don't care about life beyond the grave. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about religion. And so you feel on the outs, right? That's where you're at. And that's why my family is just talking about it on the drive up. That's why, you know, people think that we're weird. They think we're weird. We were just at the rodeo the other day, and, you know, it's like we're talking about, yeah, everybody at the rodeo thinks the Humphrey family is weird. And I was like, yeah, we're a little weird compared, you know, from what you're used to. They can't figure it out. You go to church every Sunday? You, you, you read the Bible all the time? You're weird. But that's what happens when you're on one side of the line. And that's the case for you, if you're a Christian believer. If you're not a Christian believer, you're not on that side of the line, yeah, you fit right in. You're not as weird as, well, you might be weird too, but you're not as weird, maybe, as some people might think. So you have the dividing line of faith. It's right there, and you know it. And if you're here and you don't, you, this is the first time you're hearing it, I'm telling you, there's a line there. And you've got to make a decision. But secondly, the second feature of this dividing line relates to the idea of service or servanthood. Now, when we talk about service, we're really talking about priorities. You know, who has the priority? Who, whose needs are first? Is it my needs or is it the needs of others? What are the choices that we make according to those priorities. And so Jesus at Capernaum, he confronted the disciples about this argument that they had that we just read about. They were kind of sheepish about it, but they finally admitted in verse 34 that they were arguing about who was the greatest. And isn't that just everything that's going on in our society? That's what you have every day. Who's the greatest? Who's the coolest? Who has the most likes? Who gets the most clicks? Who has the most shares? You know. It, that's, that, who is the greatest is what we're, we're dominated by. That's what we think about all the time. You're like, oh no, I'm not on social media. 
yeah, I'm the greatest. I'm not on social media. I'm way better than everybody else. That's how it works, right? As soon as you do that. You know, because you, you're pretty proud to tell everybody. <laughs> and we all do it. The other gospel writers offer various details about this argument. Uh, the who is the greatest argument. But the main point here is that followers of Jesus saw themselves in competition to see who was closer to Jesus and therefore who is of a higher status than everyone else. If you were here for Sunday school, we talked about this idea of living as the church and we kind of went through it's quite humorous as we listened to all the different denominations that were represented in the Sunday school class. And isn't then there a temptation to say, well, I'm from this denomination, so we're actually closer to Jesus than you are. We can all use religion as simply a status game. That we're just, we're just trying to climb the ladder of status in comparison to everyone else. You know, just like junior high, that's how it works, right? Junior high is about who has status, who is cooler than other people. Who, who's got cool shoes? Who doesn't have cool shoes? Who has the cool haircut? Who doesn't have the cool haircut? Who's got cool friends? Who doesn't have cool friends? And it's all that kind of stuff. It's ironic, though, of course, you know, you're, in a, you're working in an office or at your workplace. It's still junior high, isn't it? Right? It's like, oh, well, who you know, who, who's closer, who has closer access to the boss? Does the boss answer your emails? Oh, well, you're closer. You know, you're cooler. You're, you're higher up the ladder. Who doesn't get their emails answered? All these status games of who's the greatest. It's, of course, competitive. It's, we're all competitive in that way. And the priorities of ourselves come first. And others come last. But then Jesus said in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's very simple. The priorities in being on Jesus' side for service to others is service to them first and considering your selfish priorities last. Now, this can seem, I think, to rub against maybe the natural order of the world that's God that God has designed you know I have priority of loving my own wife first versus other women the priority of loving my own children versus other children first but Jesus point is that you will have various ways to serve people in different proximities to you but if you're on Jesus side you will trust him to take care of you to raise you up to give you whatever status he chooses and you will simply then prioritize others for your Lord's sake. So it's not saying you're not going to prioritize your own spouse or your own children first. But what it's saying is, whatever you're prioritizing, it's for the Lord's sake first and not yourself. And of course then he illustrates this by going on. He illustrates it with that famous, you know, the famous children's ministry verses. The reception of the child episode. Verse 36, he took a child, put him in the midst of them, take him in his arms. He said to him, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The focus 
of all, most of us, when we read that, we're, we're focused on the child. We just fixate on that. And that's right to a certain extent. A child, though, is not going to help you to gain status. A child isn't going to add to your bank account, parents. Right? Kids are, do I need to say it? Kids are expensive. Right? Okay, yeah. I, almost, I thought I'd get an amen for that one, but I guess not. So, so receiving a child is not a pathway to higher status. Now, somebody can come back and argue, oh yeah, well, in some context it is. No. But, it, but generally speaking, kids aren't adding to you. You're giving to kids. So when you receive a child, it's not helping you in any status game because that's the context. That's what he's getting at. Receiving a child doesn't help you win at life in the eyes of, of most people. That's not, that's not the way to win. But the point is not just the willingness to receive children. It's that children are to be received, and this is the kicker, to be received in my name. It's just not just that you have kids, you're nice to kids. It's receiving children in my name, Jesus said. That is the dividing line. This is why Sunday school here is not just an add-on. It is an opportunity to receive children in Jesus' name. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line. When children then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are received in Jesus' name. You know what Sunday school is? Sunday school is a vast evangelistic program. That's what it is. It's not just like extended childcare, although it can be that a little bit. It's, it's actually sharing the gospel. We want the children to know the gospel. Because if they know the gospel, then they can believe in the gospel. Because that's the dividing line. That's the difference when a church that loses the gospel and they still have Sunday school. They don't really care if the kids actually believe the gospel anymore. They'll kind of entertain them, give them a few Bible stories, but that's it. We want kids to know Jesus Christ. So, for example, just recently, there was Young's Farm VBS, Vacation Bible School, and it was ministering to all kinds of unbelieving kids for a week. And, and these kids are welcome to that camp, and the welcome is in Jesus' name. They're not doing it in the name of the Alberta government. You, you can find camps for that. They're not doing it in the name of Tim Hortons. There's kids' camps for that. They're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. The dividing line is doing it in Jesus' name. That's why the people who serve at the VBS, just like our Sunday school, are Christian believers. They walk in obedience to Jesus as their Lord. Now, some people might like to help with kids, but if they're not following the Lord, then they're not receiving kids in Jesus' name. See, there's, there's so much fuzzy thinking about this in the world, so much fuzzy thinking about this in churches. But we must be clear about that dividing line. And then when we're on the right side of the line receiving children, receiving adults, especially 
those that don't materially benefit us, when we do that, we can have confidence that we are receiving the blessing of Christ who is sent by His Father, who is our Father. We get all of that. But it's got to be in line with the line of division, the line of service in this case. Now Jesus' point is to clarify the dividing line as applied then to that service for the Lord. The disciples are having a hard time seeing past their competitive positioning. But Jesus draws the dividing line sharply right through their argument. And so, I think, I think it's important for us to think about this. Do you see the importance of having that line drawn in every ministry that Christians take up? Without it, we can't say that we're receiving people in Jesus' name, but only in our own name. You know, I, I recall a church that I knew, and they would have people who were not Christian believers as participants in the worship team. And I could never, it, it boggled my mind. Because how could someone who was not worshiping Jesus Christ then lead other people in worshiping Jesus Christ? So the dividing line was not there. It was completely obliterated, completely confused. It must be, if people are leading us in worship and assisting us, they must be worshiping first so that we can be worshiping the true Christ. Otherwise, you're only receiving people in the name of your ministry or your, your church assembly or, or in your own name, but not in Jesus' name. And so that's the division. That's the division between many of the so-called churches in this city. They're receiving people, and maybe they've got full buildings too, but they're receiving people in their own name, not in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's where it kind of starts getting real, is why are you coming to this church or another gospel-preaching church where the dividing line is clear versus all kinds of other religious gatherings this morning is because of that dividing line. Well, having confronted that I am the greatest argument that these disciples were having, Jesus, it's not Muhammad Ali, but nobody, you'd have to be pretty old to know the Muhammad Ali reference, I am the greatest. You don't even know that. There's only a couple guys. Kevin Holler knows it, I think. I know it. Few others know that he'd said I am the greatest. That's why I was going to put it in, and I'm like, nobody's going to know because I'm just too old. Uh, but anyways, but that's what the disciples say. I am the greatest. Jesus then clarified who is on the Lord's side. Verses 38 to 41. And he specifically makes that point that if you are on the Lord's side of the dividing line, you're not alone. Very important. You're not alone. Verse 38. John, who generally John is quite sensible, he says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He's not following us. John was telling Jesus that John was concerned about the dividing line. Hey, we know there's a line there, Jesus. He was so concerned about it 
that he wasn't going to let anybody say that they were on the right side of the line if they weren't closely associated with John's group. They're not in my group. They're not in our group. They're not following us. And so this is an interesting, different kind of temptation, isn't it? It's a temptation for all of us who care about the dividing line. And I would say, if you're coming to this church, my guess is you're probably more oriented to care a lot about the dividing line. That's why you're here. That's why you're not somewhere else. And what happens is, and it's kind of a temptation for all of us, we can get so suspicious of everyone and everything that unless someone is doing things in the same way, in the same style, while reading the same books or listening to the same podcast or whatever it is, if they're not doing it exactly the same, then we assume they're on the other side of the dividing line, right? The, the problem with that is, the problem with that is, we, you get into a, even a church like this and then you'll find out, oh, Clint's not doing it the way I want, <laughs> right? And you're probably thinking that right now. It's like, I think of five things that I wish were different in this church. Somebody else has a list of ten, you know. And then, then there's my list of what I'd like to do differently. You think I, we do, I do everything that I want to do here that's my preferences. We can draw the line so narrow and assume, oh, you don't do it my way, you're on the other side of the line. We can draw the circle too narrow. You know, and, and, you, and we become, you know, it's the old saws, we become the frozen chosen, right? We become, you know, the, the slogan for our church is, us four, no more, close the door. Is that, is that what you want? It's like, oh, there's too many people here, we must be compromising. Well, people kind of think that. We, we see, you, you can see the compromise of the ecumenical movement where you just minimize truth. We talked about it in Sunday school. You don't talk about any true things. You can see how the Roman Catholic Church is like, you know, the Borg in Star Trek and they just, they just kind of latch onto everything and make it all a part of the Roman Catholic Church. But when you think that everything is compromised all the time, even if people do things a little differently, you end up, end up cutting off people who are actually on the Lord's side, who are solid, but they're doing things differently. Now it takes discernment, and that's why at this church, why we teach, for example, this summer we taught systematic theology, what we call bucket theology, buckets or categories of theology, because there are varying degrees of importance that certain doctrinal beliefs have. What you believe about the superscriptions in the Psalms is not the same as what you believe about the freedom of God in election. It's not the same level. What you believe about the authorship of Hebrews is not of the same importance as what you believe about baptism. So there's varying degrees. So John pointed out that there were those who are doing similar good work, casting out demons. They're doing it in Jesus' name. That's the right identification. They just weren't in John's group. And so what does Jesus say to that? It's interesting. This, this kind of clarifies a lot. He, Jesus said, verse 39, Do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So this is why on a Sunday morning, I try, and pastors here we try, to to pray for other churches that are preaching the gospel. Because we don't have a monopoly here. We don't have a monopoly on the gospel. Jesus was saying that the dividing line is so costly and so distinctive that folks who would identify truly with Jesus, they got to really mean business. They got to be really serious. It's costly even to support the cause of Christ, to support someone who belongs to Christ. So if a person is willing to identify with Jesus, he's going to identify with Jesus' people, and, he's, and even when those people are, are something a little bit different than his little band, they're going, to, they're going to support them. Maybe not agree with everything, but they're going to be on the same side. And that's why I just praise God in this city that there are churches, even in the last dozen years now, there are some churches that have emerged that are preaching the gospel. And there are other churches that sometimes have the content of the gospel that can be heard, but, but, they're, but they're just not committed to the dividing line. And it's a very sad thing. But thankfully now, at least there's gospel witnesses that we can point people to. And I pray that they all flourish, just as they pray for us to flourish. But they do things differently. Their music is going to be a little bit different. The way their church building is set up is going to be a little bit different. Their order of service is a little bit different. But they're on the same line. They're on Jesus' side of the line. It's very important to be clear about that. And it's also good to recognize how tragic it is when you see churches that claim the name of church and they have actually moved to the other side of the line. They say stuff about Jesus but it is not the true Christ that they worship. They are false churches. You've had the experience, though, if you're a Christian believer, you've had this experience, you've you've been traveling, you know, probably like in an airport, you're flying, and you're, you're, you know, you, you meet somebody new, and it doesn't take you know, too many interactions, you, you know, you hear their vocabulary and their lingo, and you ask them, so are you a Christian? <laughs> you know, are, are, you, are you a Christian believer? And, and then you, f- you find out instantly, even though you don't know this person, you just met them, and through a short interaction you find out, yeah, it's, it seems like they are a Christian believer. And instantly, you've got a kinship, you've got this sense of, of family, of being on the Lord's side together, this fellowship that's instant there. And very likely, as I've had the experience, you don't believe everything that they believe or that their church believes or that what their church does. But you can recognize they're on the Lord's side. They're on the Lord's side. And if they are on the, on the Lord's side, then they are loyal to Him just as you are loyal to Him. And, and, and that's a key thing. But as you contrast it, think of a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching just in the early part of chapter 9, we looked at the faithless generation. The faithless generation was no, they weren't loyal 
to Christ. They did not align in loyalty to Christ. The faithless generation is against Christ. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. If the faithless generation is against Christ and it's costly to identify with Christ, then the one who is not against us is for us. Like, it's not in a generic sense. It's someone who is with Christ. They're not opposing us. Then they are for us. Verse 40. Now, if you are forsaking the faithless generation and its opposition to the true Christ, there is a sense in which you have to be with Christ. You're on his side. Nobody else would bother suffering that cost. We could say that identifying with Jesus is a loyalty test. Who or to whom are you loyal? Are you loyal to yourself as the king or queen? Yourself as the monarch? Or are you loyal to King Jesus? Very simple. That's the dividing line. To whom are you loyal? To whom do you swear allegiance? To whom do you swear your oath of fealty? As the older English said it. Are you aware of the loyalty of others to the true Christ, even if they have immature ideas or minor bad ideas? Do you, do you esteem that loyalty to Jesus and are quick to recognize it? This has been so helpful for me over the years. Because as I've got to know more pastors, know more churches across Canada and the U.S. and even places like China where I've been, you go to these places and you realize, yeah, they don't, they don't do things the way we do them here in Calgary. They do things way different. But you see, ah, but they're loyal to Jesus, and they're expressing their loyalty in these ways. Now, we maybe express them in different ways, but they're all, we're all expressing our loyalty to Christ. And then you, you see it for what it is, and you appreciate it. And sometimes, when you see someone else's loyalty to Christ, it points out things in your own life like, oh, yeah. I, I, could, I could show my loyalty to Jesus in a new area of my life that I hadn't been thinking about. And you get that opportunity by being sometimes with these other folks. We need to be a little quicker to recognize that loyalty because that dividing line, it's very costly to maintain. The faithless generation finds it easy to live on their side of the line. It's easy. But the believer will suffer pain in this life for being on Jesus' side of the line. And so when you get any little refreshment, any little reprieve, the cup of cold water, when you get that from a believer, it's just so refreshing. It's so helpful. Whether, whether it's a book, or it's a, it's a Facebook post, or it's a little email, or it's a text, or it's just a few words that somebody has shared with you. Even someone doesn't go to your church, but someone, even someone here that's not your same personality, or not, your, you know, not really like you, but they send something to you, they give, share something with you. It's like, oh, I just, I, I needed that. We have an online little bulletin board called Church Community Builder, CCB, if you hear people talking about it here. And one of the cool things is in it, when there's someone has a crisis, a need, or something's come up, or asked for prayer, people will just have little notes on there, and they'll just offer these just little cups of cold water, as it were, just little encouragements. And it's like, you, you think, 
I didn't even know that person in the church knew I existed. And here they are just sending me just a little encouragement. Or they're, just, or they're saying something at the door, you know. Or even if they didn't say something, maybe they said something to God on your behalf and prayed for you and you didn't even know it. But they're, they're just so refreshing because they're coming from those who are loyal to Jesus. And that actually is why we gather at church. Like, why are you here? Why are you gathered here? Well, one of the reasons we worship the true and living God to express our loyalty, but it's to refresh each other. To refresh each other with the things that matter. To be refreshed by the Spirit together. To hear the Word together. This is the Word heard together. Not everybody going and studying all their own stuff separately. This is the Word heard together. This is us together, refreshing each other. We're being refreshed because I'm guessing you, just like me, you've been beat up this week. Not physically, probably, but you've been beat up just by the world. Beat up in your thoughts. Beat up in relationships. And you're encouraged here. You're refreshed because we belong to Jesus and not to the faithless generation. But this then brings me, as we're thinking about this line, brings me then to the consequences, the dire consequences. And it's the consequences that we don't, we don't talk enough about. It's the cro- consequences of those who cross the line and align themselves with the faithless generation rather than Christ. Now, if you have the ESV Bible, if you look there, you'll see that heading before verse 42. And the heading, which is not inspired, but it says temptations to sin, at least in my ESV here. That's, that's the heading. And um, although temptation is a true problem, there's no doubt about that, that label, I think, is too generic for what Jesus is doing here at this section. This last section, Jesus draws a line against the faithless generation so sharply, so sharply, that he is literally, literally going to terrify anyone who would remain on the faithless generation side. He's going to terrify them. Jesus is vindictive against those who would lead children into faithlessness. You didn't think he could be vindictive. He is. He said it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That is what Jesus thinks. You've heard all of the recent media attention and films talking about the trafficking of children. Jesus makes a vindictive threat that is very relevant in view of that discussion. But in particular, in verse 42, Jesus is referring to the deadly threat of false teaching. False teaching. False teaching leads the vulnerable, like children. It leads them into faithlessness. It leads them into sin. I'll say more about this at the end, but But for now, you need to see how serious this is. And then Jesus, he moves very personally to address everyone in verse 43. 
Jesus thinks that hell is by comparison worse than temporary losses, discomfort, injuries, or any bad thing that might happen in this life. I know we're not supposed to use hell as a manipulative psychological tool to scare people into heaven. We've spent the last century saying that you can't scare people into heaven. That's what everybody says. That's what everybody's told. But we have come to see here that Jesus uses the consequences of hell as a logical motivator in a certain measure. You know, Heaven is a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards said. That's true. And there's a positive motivator, but don't doubt, there is a negative motivator too. We don't want to ignore Jesus' own emphasis. Because churches just, not that they never say it, but my guess is, from your experience and mine, it's just very, very rare. Jesus' point in verse 43, is that any attempt to insulate yourself from pain, get that, to insulate yourself from pain by aligning with unbelief. If you try to do that, you want to insulate yourself from pain by aligning with unbelief, by rejecting Jesus, it leads you to hell. And hell is a pain that is much, much worse. So think about all the ways that people are trying to insulate themselves from pain. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, hell is a worse pain. He says, listen to it again in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, pain, cut it off. There's pain there. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Same the foot. Your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet being thrown into hell. And if your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. He's speaking metaphorically, but he's trying to articulate the, just this major contrast. Now, if you don't think pastors preach on hell, well, you need to listen very carefully because I preach on hell. I preach on hell because Jesus preached on hell. And he said very vividly that hell is, verse 43, the unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. This is the most descriptive statement of hell in the Bible. Hell is a conscious punishment so that even worms aren't extinguished, but the fire doesn't stop. And in fact, everyone's nerve endings will be saturated and soaked with the stimulating pain of fire. I'm not trying to be overdramatic. I'm just trying to articulate what Jesus is saying. Do you know then even, we've all had the experience, you know what it's like to feel overstimulated? It's like, oh, this is too much. Right? Too much on the screen, too much, too many people. I'm overstimulated, too much. And what do you, what do you want? It's like, I need a break. This is too much. I just need a break from this for a second. 
You need some rest. You want some peace from that overstimulation. But God says, Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace for the wicked. To be overstimulated with the wrath of God without, without peace, without a break, that is what hell is. But lastly, we see that Jesus' teaching about hell is intended to clarify the dividing line between the believers and the faithless generation because he says, echoing the Sermon on the Mount, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see that Jesus intends for his disciples and for for his followers today to be mindful of the dividing line between the faithful and the faithless generation. You either follow him and be salt and light or you ignore him and be salted with fire. So it's one or the other. Salt and light or salted with fire. How does this apply for us as I bring it to a close? To the church. The church can't ignore false teaching from inside the church as well as false teaching outside the church. We confront false teaching because Jesus did. When we are confrontational, it makes us sound egotistical, makes us sound stubborn, makes us sound mean, and it makes us sound dangerous. Did you not know that if you're a Christian believer today, everybody out there is starting to think that you're not only wrong, they think you're dangerous. They think you're dangerous. Get used to it. You want to be liked by everybody, they're not going to like you. They think you're dangerous, not just stupid. In an obituary of Charles Spurgeon, who was maybe one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, he was described in this way. This is his obituary. Mr. Spurgeon was absolutely destitute of intellectual benevolence. If men saw as he did, they were orthodox. If they saw things in some other way, they were heterodox, pestilent, and unfit to lead the minds of students or inquirers. Mr. Spurgeon's was a superlative egotism, not the shilly-shallying, timid, half-disguised egotism that cuts off its own head, but the full-grown, overpowering, sublime egotism that takes the chief seat as if by right. The only colors which, which Mr. Spurgeon recognized were black and white. What an obituary but probably would be a pretty good one if you actually lived according to the dividing line. But that's how people are going to view you. So you've got to get used to it. The church has to admit that she has enemies. Not everybody likes us. And more than that, there are false teachers who are seeking to destroy the church. And they often target who? The most vulnerable. The most vulnerable in the church. They target children, they target teenagers, and they target immature baby Christians. That's why if you're a mature Christian, you need to be on guard and looking out for newer Christians so that they don't get off on a rabbit trail and get sucked in by false teaching. We cannot coexist with false teaching because Jesus has drawn a line between the faithful and the faithless in this matter. So that's the first thing for the church. Secondly, individually, I would say this, for the individual Christian. I'd rather stand with Spurgeon and the faithful generation any day. That's, that's where we want to be. We want to be with Jesus on his side of the line. 
So cancel culture tactics are going to come to you. They're being loaded up to fire against you at any moment because you believe in binary sexes, you believe in the need to protect children, you believe in the authority of parents, you believe in the preservation of marriage, you believe in the opposition of pornography, you believe in personal possessions, not to mention that you believe in one true God who created all things and you believe in Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's opposition, but that is where the dividing line exists. It's not merely a sociological divide. It is a divide not just here, but right here. Not just here, but here, between heaven and hell. That is where the divide is. And finally, if you're here and you're undecided, you're unconcerned, you might have some kind of Christian connection. You might have grown up Dutch Reformed Church, Southern Baptist Church, Free Methodist Church, Evangelical Free Church. It doesn't really matter. Your Christian connection is not the same as you siding with Christ. It's not the same. And siding with Christ means being on the faithful side of the line. It means giving up things that can't come with you. Giving it all up. It means following Christ, even if you don't have power and strength, even if it means cutting your power off. But don't ever think that hell is just that meme you've seen, you know, with the, the dog that's drinking coffee with the fire all around him. You know the one, if you're younger, everybody old doesn't know what I'm talking about. In other words, hell's not a joke. It's a psychological and experiential terror that Jesus thinks, is lose, thinks it's worse than losing a hand or losing an eye. I won't try to scare you if you're unconcerned or undecided, but you need to pay attention to what Jesus says. Jesus' concern for you. It's what Jesus says you've got to deal with, not me. And if you can't seem to believe here this morning, then as we said before, ask Him for the gift of faith. Ask Him to bring you to Himself. Ask Him to bring you across the dividing line. And you should ask Him today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we've been confronted with this line, the line between heaven and hell, I pray that you would not let us kid ourselves but that we would believe in Jesus Christ and then together as a church that we would arise, arising with Christ, being bold as an army with banners, declaring the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, come what may, and being thankful to be on his side of the line and no other. O Lord, give us courage to believe and send us forth with that courage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we sing, O church arise. Please stand. As we consider the dividing line, I just encourage you, if you are not clear about where you stand, then please talk to somebody today about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and even to that end, I invite you, you can come and talk to me. After the service, I'm going to be, this is called the sacristy, this room over here. And if you want to meet with me and talk about the gospel, or if you have a question about the church, you're a newcomer, or maybe you're a longtime member and you just like to come and 
talk to me for a few minutes. You can see Jared carry Jared, if you can just raise your hand. Where Jared's right there. Jared's going to be at the front. He'll just give you a text if you're waiting a few minutes for when to come. And you can come and, and meet with me here after the service. But I leave you with this benediction in view of this dividing line. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.